Hello and welcome to the podcast series, Creditors Corner Legal Talk, presented by Smith Debenham Attorneys at Law, where we explore a range of legal topics impacting businesses and private individuals. So be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. My name is Jerry Myers, and I'm an attorney in the firm's Consumer Debt Collection Department. I will be your moderator today. Today's topic is bona fide error defense, and we'll be talking about what a bona fide error defense may be and how a collector may use it to their advantage. We'll talk about some disadvantages as well. Uh, Before we begin, I want to note the information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, any and all information shared is for general informational purposes only. Listeners should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. With that out of the way, now let's turn our attention to this week's topic. With us today is Karen Enlow. Karen is an attorney in the firm's Consumer Financial Services Litigation and Compliance Group. Hey, Jerry. How are you? Thrilled having me. We are delighted to have you on the call today to share your knowledge and expertise about the bona fide error defense. And so let me begin with just a couple of questions to, to get the audience uh, warmed up and tuned into what we're talking about. So for those who haven't heard of it, what is a bona fide error defense? So under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, uh, which is a strict liability statute, there is one defense provided and since 15 USC 1692K. And what it looks to is a debt collector's intent and specifically what the bona fide error defense provides is that a debt collector is not liable for a violation of the FDCPA if the debt collector can show by preponderance of the evidence that the violation was not intentional and resulted from a bona fide error, notwithstanding the maintenance of procedures reasonably adapted to avoid such error. So what's a long-winded way of saying if the debt collector has policies and procedures in place that are designed to prevent violations of the FDCPA specific to the violation that's alleged and the debt collector can show that it it didn't intend to violate the statute um, and had all that in place, then they can avoid liability. And so that's been in place ever since the FDCPA was passed, but it's not used all the time. Debt collectors are mindful as to when they raise it because as soon as you get into discovery and you've raised a bona fide error defense, the first thing the consumer's attorney is going to say is, um, can I have your policies and procedures, please? And you're going to have to turn those over. And so there is, uh, it's a, it is a defense that um, defense attorneys are mindful as to when they're going to use. They are always asking first, do you have policies and procedures in place to prevent such a violation? Can I see them, please? Um, before raising the defense. So it really emphasizes the need for solid policies and procedures. Well, and I guess a follow-up question to that would be, um, if you have policies and procedures, is is that enough? Uh, Or do you need to be able to present information about uh, internal auditing, training, et cetera, um, that would show that those policies and procedures are actually being followed? Well, you do. I mean, because they've got to be, um, they've got to, you've got to maintain them and they've got to be adapted to avoiding such errors. So obviously if they're written in a dusty old book, um, 
and no one ever sees them and there's no training done on them, then were they reasonably adapted to avoid the error? And so that's kind of where you start getting into the different layers of it. That's a really good question. So I know that the um, CFPB has, has, has promulgated a new regulation, Regulation F, um, that is commonly referred to as the debt collection rule. Is there an interplay between the bona fide error defense and this new Reg F? Yeah, there is, and it's, and it's interesting. It comes across in a couple of ways. Once it's just within the body of the rule and its official comments, and the second is we're already starting to see it come up with in, in legal rulings. But first, with respect specifically to the rule and its official comments, they contain a number of safe harbors, policies, procedures, and scripts within them. And by setting out those policies and procedures that if they're followed, um, and it, it provides solid ground for a debt collector who's put those policies and procedures and scripts and such in place to be able to rely upon those um, and, and be able to say that, look, these are our policies and procedures. They were reasonably adapted to avoid this error for which you're complaining that we, this violation of the FDCPA. And you should be um, enough if you've, if you've done all that. So it's kind of like little nuggets that are sprinkled with it within the rule that are setting out, okay, if you do it this way, you're going to be okay. And the other, the other thing going back, following up your, your previous question about is it enough just to have the policies and procedures in place, a lot of times what comes into play when you have a bona fide error defense is are those policies and procedures such that they would prevent the error? And when you look at the provisions in the, local, in the debt collection rule, I mean, they're laying out things as specific as scripts in the official comments. And we'll talk about that. I think we're gonna talk about that a little bit with limited content messages. Um, but that's a really good example of where they've laid them out. And so we've got things like that that are just within the rule that are setting out either a safe harbor or they're setting out examples. If you do it this way, you're gonna be okay. And so, so that's how it's coming into play directly with the rule, but indirectly, we're already starting to see some legal rulings that are mentioning the debt collection rule. And so in respect, with respect to that, now we're seeing that the courts are starting to say, okay, if you follow these policies and procedures that are set out in the debt collection rule, then you may be able to lay out a bona fide error defense. Well, you mentioned limited content messages as being an example of, of one of those nuggets that's scattered across the new debt collection rule. Uh, I want to talk about that, but before we go into limited content messages, are there a couple of other easy examples? I mean, I've looked at the new debt collection rule and it's so voluminous that uh, it, it, it's daunting and, and, and it, you don't feel like you just immediately want to dive into that thing and start reading. So maybe you can tease our audience with a couple of other examples where the rule can be used to their benefit. Yeah, well, first of all, anybody that's reading the rule, uh, the, the common mistake people make is they start on page one of the CFPB rules. It was published in the Federal Register. And if you start there, you're going to be asleep by about page 50. Um, what folks have to realize is probably the first 400 of the of 500 pages is the CFPB explaining their rationale behind the rule. The actual rule is in the back and the comments are even behind that. So really, it's if you take that part out and just use that part, it's not quite so bad. But a couple other examples that are in there is, is when you're dealing with electronic communications. And the most obvious one, obviously, is the model form for debt validation. Well, let's circle back down, talk about limited content messages. And, and I, I know that there has been 
some real challenges. There have been significant challenges over the last few years for debt collectors who call a consumer and the consumer doesn't answer. And the question is, do you leave a message? Do you not leave a message? What kind of message can you leave? What sort of guidance do we get with the new debt collection rule on that? Well, they tried to kind of um, they tried to kind of walk back the Second Circuit. Uh, I think it was the Eastern District of New York's case of Fody, where the debt collector was left the conundrum: if I leave a message, I have to disclose I'm a debt collector, give my many Miranda, etc. And in doing so, if it's picked up by a third party, then that's a con- an impermissible communication with a third party concerning a debt. And so what limited content messages do is a new concept that's introduced in the rule and it's the definitional section. And they're intended to provide a safe way for debt collectors to leave non-substantive messages for a consumer requesting a return call while not inadvertently disclosing the debt to third parties. They are incredibly limited in what can be said. And so how much they're going to come into play and what real value they're going to have to debt collectors is somewhat up in the air, um, particularly with those whose name reveal that they're a debt collector within the company's name. And so from that perspective, you know, I'm not sure how much people are going to use limited content messages, but for those that are, a really good example of where the bona fide error defense kind of gets some strengthening is in the official comments, there are specific scripts that can be used. And if a debt collector is seriously considering adopting the limited content messages as part of their business plan moving forward, then what they need to do is adopt those scripts verbatim as part of their policies and procedures to preserve the bona fide error. And and that's just a a really good example of how this debt collection rule is setting things out. And now we're getting guidance from the regulatory enforcement agency for debt collection saying, okay, if you do this, you've complied with the FDCPA. And so I think, you know, certainly it helps you on a regulatory action, but with what we've been seeing with the courts now kind of leaning into the debt collection rule, even though it hasn't taken effect yet, um, we're starting to see that that is going to, if, if a debt collector models their policies and procedures after the debt collection rule and pulls the specific examples and gems that are in there out of there, um, they'll be setting themselves up pretty well for bona fide error defenses. And these are things I think debt collectors have to think about on the front end with, with their compliance officers and such as, we're gonna do this, we have to anticipate that we're gonna get sued on X, Y, and Z. Where is our heightened risk of litigation on this? And if we have a heightened risk of litigation on this, how are we going to protect ourselves such that if we are going to get sued on it, that we can come out of it without liability? Well, you know, at first blush, the limited content message seems like a, uh, a really small thing. But if you think that through, it, it really is significant. That's a significant advantage to the collector because we all know that people don't answer their phones unless they see on the call display that it's their mom or their wife or their husband or somebody that they know, if it's an unknown number, um, they're not going to answer the call. And so the only opportunity to leave a voice communication with those folks and hopefully get them on the phone with a return call is to leave a message. And leaving a message was so fraught with problems after the Fody case and, and the ones that followed. I think this is a, a huge advantage uh, for the uh, for the collector moving forward. I think you're right. I think they're really, we, I, I was on a call last week um, on a panel talking about limited content messages for an hour. 
and it's such a small provision in the rule, but the the problem really is this provision of you have the debt collector has to say the name of the company. The name of the company can't reveal it's a debt collector. And we're going to see a ton of litigation over that. What words mean that you're a debt collector? Is it words pieced together? Management by itself doesn't, but does receivables management? Probably. Or a law firm that is only in debt collection, just by leaving a message, have they revealed that they're a debt collector? And, you know, we were joking around about there being some kind of, you know, um, sliding scale that we could put together with words that some words are in red, don't use this word, and some are yellow, and some are green. But I mean, in all seriousness, that's where I think the limited content is going to come from. Um, one of the other panelists had gone through ACA's directory and pulled out keywords, and about 50% of the debt collectors had those words in their names. And so I think we're going to see a ton of litigation. And that's why I agree with you. I think utilitarian-wise, it's a great tool if you can you can dodge all the bullets you're going to have to to make it work. And if you're going to use it, I mean, those scripts are laid out in the official comments. Don't deviate from them. I mean, that is the script and the only script. And don't go beyond that because it's, it's a one-sentence message. So Maybe two if you put in the optional greeting. Good morning. <laughs> well, we've talked about uh, voice communications. Let's talk about electronic communications. Um, I know that many in the collection industry, debt collection industry, have been looking for ways to safely communicate with consumers using the medium of, or the media of communication that the consumers prefer. And many of them prefer email. Some of them prefer text. We know that a lot of them don't prefer uh, telephone communication. So what does what the new debt collection rule do, do for us in terms of protecting our ability to use uh, electronic communication? Well, I think this is one of the places that they really lay out safe harbors and policies and procedures. Uh, and look, the, the debt collection rule, the hallmark on it, Craninger said, was to bring the 20th century rule uh, into the 21st century using modern technology. And I think that is, you know, that is the onus of part one of the rule, which was um, published at the end of October of this past year. But what the rule does is it provides a general roadmap for compliance with the FDCPA with respect to electronic communications in section 1006.6. And specifically what the rule does is it sets forth specific procedures, which if followed, including provisions for consumer opt-outs, provide the debt collector with a safe harbor with respect to those electronic communications and also with respect to un any unintentional third-party electronic communications where, say, uh, the message is picked up by third party, just like we were talking about with voting. And so what it allows is with respect to email communications and text messaging, uh, 1006D, I think four and five, allow for those. First, um, by allowing the use of an email address or, or text of number, the consumer is either used to communicate with the debt collector and is not subsequently opted out of, or the consumer has provided prior express consent to use. And secondly, by allowing an email address or text address used previously by the creditor or prior debt collector subject to certain limitations and conditions. And so what that does is it kind of sets out, okay, here are the parameters of what you can use. And then importantly, if you've implemented all of the policies and procedures that are laid out in 1006 D4 and D5, if the, that message is, is inadvertently received by a third party, 
it provides a bona fide error defense in those instances where the debt collector can satisfy two conditions. First, that they've had procedures in place to reasonably conform, confirm and document that the communications complied with those provisions. And remember, Jerry, let me just backtrack a little bit. Under 1006.100, there is a document retention requirement in the rule, which really is going to force debt collectors to re- comply and provide documentation to show that they've complied with the rule. And so by having those in place, um, that's the first that's the first condition that has to be met for the inadvertent third-party contact. The other one is that the debt collector's poli- policies and procedures include steps to reasonably confirm and document that the debt collector did not communicate with the consumer at an address that they know have led to an impermissible third-party communication before. And the official comments contain sample language for opt-out notices. Um, and while they don't explicitly provide a safe harbor for those, I think the fact that it's in the official comments provides an implied safe harbor. And then you've got a provision also along those lines in 1006.22 that talks about with respect to um, 1692F, which if you remember is the unfair and unconscionable provision of the Debt Collection Act. It provides a safe harbor for emails and texts that were sent in accordance with D3. Um, so I, again, we've got a lot of real positives um, that are kind of just being set out within the rule. So there were a couple of things there that you said that, that really resonated with me. One of them uh, was about, I guess, permission to use the email address and uh, and providing an opt-out provision if somebody says, yeah, you can communicate with me using this email address. And later they decide, you know, I really don't want to get any more, any more emails. Uh, and so it looks like permission is a big part of that. And I'll, I'll let you address that. The other piece that, that sort of sticks out for me is that um, there are consumers who mix business with with uh, with personal things and they're at work during the business day and um, they have access to printers and scanners and, and they're work, trying to work out a, a, an arrangement with a debt collector and they want to do it where they've got access to the equipment that makes it easier to do. Maybe they don't have all that equipment at home. So what if they give the uh, the debt collector the employer's email address? And you can tell by looking at it, it's, it's so-and-so at exxon.com. Uh, how does the debt collector safely n- navigate the consent piece and the obvious work address piece? Well, two things with that. One, the CFPB, it really specifically in those first 400 pages, I told you not to start within the rule. They address that as implied consent. Um, you can't in- initiate that communication to what you know is a work address, but they can initiate that communication. And the, and the CFPB has said that, look, if they initiate it, it's implied consent. And it goes right back up to 1006 D4, where they're talking about an email address where the consumer has has communicated with you from. Um, and so now handle the, the first question you asked, I think was what if they revoke that consent? Again, that's why you've got this record keeping requirement in the rule is so that you can document that you got that and that you quit communicating. Very good. Well, that's a complicated area and we'll look forward to seeing how that develops. Um, You mentioned earlier on um, about the debt validation notice and I have heard speakers for years say, look, 1692G says what you need to say. Here are the notices you must provide. And 
don't monkey with the, with the language. Use exactly what's in the statute. When you start monkeying with the language, you get sued. Um, what can you tell us about the new uh, model validation letter? Yeah, and you know, I think the the quote is um, from our friend Manny Newberger, don't screw with the language. And like you and I both know that even when you try to make the language clearer, because in the rule it's written in the passive voice, even when you put in the active voice, just by changing the voice of it, you're going to get sued. Um, and you might get out of it, but you're still going to have to go through the expense of the lawsuit. So don't screw with it if you can't, if you can help it. Um there's a safe harbor letter that's provided. It's a model form. Uh, I think it's B3 on in the rule, B1 in the rule. Uh, and it's a model form that takes all these new special validation pieces that you and I talked about in a podcast a couple of weeks ago. And it sets it out and how, it, how it's going to have to be to stay in the safe harbor. And they, they provide partial safe harbors a lot of folks are not going to be able to use this letter verbatim for various reasons. Um, the meta, the, the healthcare vertical is going to have some problems that are innate to their industry because of the fact that you might get insurance credits or renegotiated rates or things change on the contracted rate for services provided such that you're going to have some kind of credit that you're going to have to show that's not neatly set out in the rule. Um, the CFPB tried to do was come up with something that was generic enough that it could be used, um, but also specific enough that it addressed some of the concerns that they were trying to address with um, consumer protection. So you can get full protection if you use this form verbatim, and, and I really hope people find a way that they can. Or you can, if you have to change portions of it, you can still preserve certain partial safe harbors. But using the model form in its entirety is going to be preferable. Will people be able to do it? Remains to be seen. I've talked to several um, debt collectors that are looking at it and figuring out, okay, and if we go to 11 by 14, we can. Just remember some of the things we talked about is having to get all of those state required disclosures. And the one that comes to mind is permit numbers, et cetera, and special state language uh, on the back above the tear off portion. And that gets, that gets complicated if you're trying to do a one size fits all, which I frankly don't think you're going to be able to do. But if you can stay in that model form within the four corners of that model form, then you're going to have a safe harbor. Well, we've talked about three really important aspects of the new debt collection rule and how that interplays with the bona fide error defense. You, you gave us a good introduction to limited content messages and how that uh, comes into play with the rule. We talked about electronic communications and then um, and then this model debt validation letter. Are there any just sort of general comments that you might make about utilizing these? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to start with the premise that you, under 1006.100, you now have a full document retention requirement upon you to show that you've complied with the rule in the FDCPA. And while that may seem onerous to some debt collectors, it's actually going to help you when it comes to a bona fide error defense. So if you're keeping those records to substantiate your, your compliance and you're coupling that with policies and procedures that have culled through the rule and pulled the procedures and scripts that should be incorporated, um, then you're going to be in a pretty good shape 
to start employing the bona fide error defense if you haven't already in, in some of your collection act, your debt collection um, defense actions. So, I, you know, I think why the bona fide error defense, you know, it doesn't come up as much as you think it comes up in litigation. I think we're going to, it just got stronger with the rule and we're going to see debt collectors being able to employ it a lot more often. Well, that is fantastic, Karen. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise uh, on these topics today. And I want to thank our audience for listening. Uh, I want to invite those who are listening who have questions to send emails uh, to Karen. Karen, you want to give your email address? Sure. It's um, very easy to spell. <laughs> C-E-N-L-O-E at smithdebnamlaw.com. Very good. Uh, and is there a phone number where folks might contact you? Sure. My direct dial is 919-250-2125. So that goes directly to your desk and not through a receptionist. It's, it's a straight shot. Exactly right. Very good. Well, we invite our listeners to check out other episodes of the uh, Creditor's Corner Legal Talk. And uh, we remind folks to hit subscribe so that you get notices of our upcoming programs. And we hope that you all stay well. Thank you for participating. Thanks for having me, Jerry.